Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. We are coming to you live from the courthouse, and the judge has just announced a lunch break. And this time, it really is a lunch break. I'm talking soups and sandwiches, that kind of thing. Not the break we took yesterday. Take a listen to our cut one. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to evacuate the building at this time, so we'll be in recess until we discover what's going on. That recess was for a bomb threat. As you all know, you legal eagles, there was a bomb threat right in the middle of the state's presentation yesterday. Gee, I wonder who would want to disrupt the state's presentation. That said, we now know it was a mail caller. I believe it was. Christine, wasn't it from area code 843? But we don't know who the caller was, yet uh, they think it is 843. There was no bomb, but it wreaked havoc in the Murdoch prosecution. Well, guess what? We're back at it. And the judge, as always, cool as a cucumber on the bench. But today in court, it was another matter. Damning evidence pouring from the witness stand. I'm Nancy Grace. This is Crime Stories. Thank you for being with us here at Fox Nation and Sirius XM 111. I'm going to go to the experts in just a moment, but I want you to hear what we have learned about Alex Murdoch, high-profile lawyer and legal heir there in South Carolina on trial for the murders of his wife, Maggie, and adult son, Paul. I want you to hear what the state has just put up on the stand. Take a listen to our cut two. Starting at 9.06.48 p.m. and then into 9.06.50 p.m. So at that point, it actually has an engine running event, so the car has been turned on. Okay, so 9.06.50 p.m., the vehicle is put, taken out of park, and then let's go down the line, 1904, 1.904. was the next event where the vehicle went back into park at 9.22 and 45 seconds. In your opinion, uh, could the vehicle have been moving between those two times? Yes, it could have. I have no evidence of that. Roughly how much time passes between the vehicle taking out of park at line 1672 and put back in a park at line 1904? Approximately 16 minutes. Uh, at 9.22.45 p.m., and that's line 1904, uh, that's when the vehicle had been placed in a park, correct? That's correct. 9.43.05, the vehicle is now back out of park, correct? That's correct. Roughly how much time passes between those two events? Approximately 21 minutes. Okay, you are hearing an expert on the stand, uh, Dwight Falksofke, and he is an expert in car engines, car systems, car navigation systems, Think about it if you have a nav system in your car. It can tell you uh, directions to get where you're going. It can tell you all sorts of things. Your car is actually pretty smart now. And of course, Murdoch has a car that's the top of the line. Joining me is Mike King, former police commander, host of Profiling Evil, and Brian Darr, senior forensic engineer and tire expert at usforensictireexpert.com. I want to go to both of you gentlemen. I'll get to the rest of you guests in just a second. Brian Dar, could you interpret what this expert, Dwight 
Falkovsky was saying. Uh, yeah, it sounded like the, uh, the, he was referring to the infotainment system. The, the infotainment records all sorts of data, has track logs that it, it can track your whereabouts as far as when you turn the vehicle on, turn it off, where you actually go, don't go, things of that sort. Okay, listen, I may have a, a double legal degree, but I don't know anything that you just said. Okay, unless it's got yellow crime scene tape around it, I don't know about it. Can you bring it down for me? He is saying, and I actually wrote it down, he is saying that there was an engine running event. Is he trying to say Murdoch turned his car on? Correct. Okay, that's an engine running event. Is that what you call it? Yes. Yeah, the, the engine's okay. running, the, the car's running. <laughs> Okay, so the car has been turned on, and that is 9.06.48. And these times are very, very important, Brian Dar. Uh, hold on, Mike King, I'm coming. The vehicle was taken out of park. And let's go down the line, he says. The vehicle was taken out of park and put back into park. Now, how can you, Brian Dar, look at data coming from the vehicle and tell me exactly the second that the car was taken out of park and put back into park. Well, the, the, the system within the car, uh, each manufacturer is different, so each manufacturer records different things, but uh, it, it dates and timestamps it. So that's why it's recording it down to its relative to the, the clock in the vehicle. It's amazing to me that all of this is kind of like a black box on an airplane. So they can even tell us. Um, and let me go to you, Joshua Ritter, criminal defense attorney, partner at Worksman Jackson and Quinn, former L.A. County deputy district attorney. Thanks for being with us, Joshua. I mean, this is like, I know you're a defense attorney, so don't take this the wrong way, which means it's going to be really bad, whatever I'm about to say about defense attorneys. <laughs> Joshua, this is a defense lawyer's worst nightmare because Alex Murdoch has given this alibi that he wasn't there at the scene of the double murders. And here you've got somebody like Brian Darr saying, uh, well, he cranked up his car at 906.50. There was an engine running event. Translation, he turned his car on. What do you do with that as a defense lawyer, Joshua? <laughs> well, jurors love this type of stuff. You're absolutely right. It begins to recreate the crime for them. They be it becomes to it begins to become alive for them what took place that evening and minute by minute. It's pretty incredible how they can get it down to the exact minute and second of what he was doing and when and start to reconstruct this. And you're absolutely right. If that cuts against his alibi, they got big problems. But the thing I'll point out is what you've noticed and what I notice is I think I understand this stuff pretty well, but I'm still a little bit lost and I'm a little bit confused and confusion plates right into the defense hand. And if they can cause some confusion in the jurors' minds that they don't quite understand what this evidence is telling them, is he turning on his car? Is he moving his car? What does that mean to have a, his engine turn on? If that causes any kind of doubt enough that it rises to the level that they don't know what to believe, that could play into the defense hand. I don't like anything that you're saying, Ritter. But you're right, because if all of us with, let's see, you've got, uh, look, look, on, our, on our panel right now, you've got a, a doctor, a medical examiner, you've got Ann Emerson, a, a reporter, 
You've got Mike King, a police commander. You've got Joshua Ritter. If all of us don't quite know what was said on the stand, the jury's not going to get it either. But then he tries to, he, the prosecutor re-asks the question, how much time between the vehicle taking out of park and putting back in park? 16 minutes. And that's when the vehicle was in park, yes. And when the vehicle goes out of park, 21 minutes. And I guarantee you, there's going to be a big chart, Joshua Ritter, and it's going to explain it in understandable terms what this means. Guys, I want to hear that sound one more time. Christine, do you mind playing it one more time now that we've got a little understanding based on what Brian, Brian Dar told us? Starting at 9.06.48 p.m. and then into 9.06.50 p.m. So at that point, it actually has an engine running event, so the car has been turned on. Okay, so 9.06.50 p.m., the vehicle is put, taken out of park, and then let's go down the line, 1904, 1904. Was the next event where the vehicle went back into park at 9.22 and 45 seconds. In your opinion, uh, could the vehicle have been moving between those two times? Yes, it could have. I have no evidence of that. Roughly how much time passes between the vehicle taking out of park at line 1672 and put back in a park at line 1904? Approximately 16 minutes. Uh, at 9.22.45 p.m., and that's line 1904, uh, that's when the vehicle had been placed in a park, correct? That's correct. 9.43.05, the vehicle is now back out of park, correct? That's correct. Uh, roughly how much time passes between those two events? Approximately 21 minutes. Well, look. I don't have the background that Brian Dar has with TireExpert.com, but I can tell you what that means. Straight out to Mike King, former police commander, host of Profiling Evil on YouTube, author of Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult. Ooh, I got to read that. An investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult. Because, you know, I don't get to talk about murder enough all day long. I want to read about it at night. Mike King, I can tell you. And I sure don't know uh, about brake systems and nav systems like Brian Dar does, but he drove for 16 minutes to his mother's house. The car was in park. The car was turned on. It was in park. It came out of park. 16 minutes later, it went back into park. 21 minutes later, it came out of park. And he was at his mother's house 21 minutes. That's the way I'm interpreting it. Does that make sense to you, Mike King? It, it absolutely does, Nancy. And the thing that I'm so intrigued by this, I'm so glad Brian's on because I don't understand navigation systems. But I understand geography and I understand data. And the data is telling us that there's a period of time that when you map this out on a map and you look at those rural roads, roads and that system that would take him from point A to point B, if in fact he really did show up there, the time fits the story. And this is where I think the prosecution needs to maybe simplify the message to the jury. And I, I love the idea you had about possibly getting this on a map and showing them and simplifying it that, hey, during this 16 minute period of time, look how far he could have traveled. Yes, he could have traveled to the location of those homicides. Yes, he could have made it to his parents' home. And after the homicides, if all the theories are correct that the prosecution's laid out, including the theory of stopping long enough to displace a telephone, 
21 minutes going back isn't out of line either. And the going in and out of park doesn't bug me too much because to me that talks to the disorganization once this thing has happened of what am I going to do? Am I going into park, out of park in those seconds that we're playing back and forth? I think it's really powerful testimony today. stories with Nancy Grace. I'm cross-referencing right now with the ultimate guide to the evidence, which is my little trial notebook where I'm writing everything down. And um, hey, Christine, can you flip through and Sid, if you could flip through, what was the time that Murdoch called 911? In my head, I've got 10.06, but I, I want to make sure of that because I'm not seeing it in my notes. I know that at 9.58, uh, a text comes in from the friend uh, Paul Rogan that was never answered. But I need to know when that phone call was made. And I'm sorry. Yes. Did you say 906? Is she saying 9 or 10? 1006. 1006. Thanks, Christine. And I, with that in mind, and you know that the last text that Maggie read was at 849. She actively read that text. And then everything goes dead at 849.35. She read the text at 849.27. Christine, could you put the um, car movements up there again? That was brilliant, the way that you broke that down. Because that's exactly what the jury is going to want to see. So they can understand 903. He turns his car on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, leave it right there. 903. Because we believe the shootings and murders occurred at 849. At 9.03, he's still at the house. He is still at the murder scene. The way I'm reading this, his SUV boots up, cars running 9.06. I wonder what he was sitting there in the car thinking. Oh, dear Lord in heaven. 9.06, he pulls out, and there he goes. Can I see the next one, Christine? 9.06, he pulls out, takes it out of park. 9.22, he's made it to his mother's home. He parks. 9.43, it goes out of park. 9.43, it goes back into park. 9.44, he's, he's leaving his mother's house. He takes it out of park. All right, let's see what happens then. So between 44, he gets back to Moselle at 10 p.m. The car goes into park. And I don't know what he's doing right there, going in and out, in and out, multiple times at 10.01 do you have another graph or are you leaving it right there, Christine? Is there another? Car goes into park at 10.01. Oh, you've got some more for me. Oh, my goodness. He's going in and out and in and out of park. But somewhere in that time, he calls 10.06. He calls 911. Now, that's interesting because can you reverse it, Christine? exactly what you did not think I was going to ask you to do to reverse the graph. <laughs> okay, look at this. So when does he even have time to go find the bodies? Because Mozilla is huge. It's what, 1,700 acres? So he gets there at 10 p.m. He's still going in and out of park in his car. 10.01, 10.01, 10.01, 10.01. 10 then at 10.04, he's still going in and out of park. 
And at 10.06, he calls 911. Did he even go to the kennel? Look at that. He's screwing around in his car. Did he even go and look at the bodies? Because 10.06 is the time the 911 call comes in. You know what? Mike King, former police commander, host of Profiling Evil on YouTube. Don't you just love modern technology? Oh, it's fantastic in these kinds of investigations. Awesome. And as you apply, apply the behavioral science to it, you really start seeing this disorganization. And, and I'm with you. I wonder if he even got out of the car and headed over there before that 911 call, if in fact he returns to that location. But I can just see in his mind him putting that thing back in gear and out, like what on earth am I going to do? And the reality of what's happening is starting to unfold in front of him. He just gave me an idea. I had um, a viewer write in on social. I wonder if Maggie had a Fitbit or if Murdoch had a Fitbit that would show us anything. Um, I'm hearing in my ear Ann Emerson is joining us, WCIV, but I want to go back to Brian Darr. Ann, we've been talking to a senior forensic engineer and tire expert at, uh, is the name of your business U.S. Forensic? or What's the name of your business, Brian? It's U.S. Forensic. That's my employer. And I can find you at tireexpert.com. Okay, gotcha. Brian, yes. what else, what all can uh, forensic experts learn from your vehicle? Uh, you can, there's quite a bit of information you can learn. The, uh, they have airbag modules that record your speed, you know, say if you're in a collision. Uh, the infotainment system that's been discussed uh, at hand has a wealth of knowledge that can be uh, obtained from the vehicle. This is amazing to me. I'm, I'm looking now inside of Murdoch's Chevy, look at that. It's it's a really big vehicle, and you're looking right at the nav system. So I guess, Brian Darr, if it's got the nav system, I think it's got, we're going to be able to tell exactly where he travels that evening and what time, correct? Correct. Wow. Okay, Ann Emerson uh, has just made her way out of the courthouse. Thankfully, today, not because of a bomb threat, but for a lunch break, Ann Emerson is joining us. She has an award-winning daily podcast, Unsolved South Carolina, The Murdoch Murders, Money and Mystery, which is awesome. And I've really learned a lot from your podcast, by the way. And Thank you, Nancy. we're just going through everything that we can deduce from the one witness on the stand, Dwight Falkowski about the movements of Murdoch's car, his SUV. It's amazing. It, it is amazing. And Nancy, I love the, the way that y'all are taking it apart right at the end, too. I'm learning something from what y'all are talking about as well, because as you've said, we haven't gotten that visual representation of, of what this timeline looks like, except for the work that we're doing ourselves right now. We're all doing the same thing as journalists trying to piece together this timeline that is very specific off of this um, this OnStar car um, information. You know, it, it's amazing, as you said, what technology can do. And, and just coming up with what you were just talking about, that, that very, very narrow time period of when that car returned to Moselle and when it uh, and, and, you know, when it stopped, I mean, th that is very important. And when that 911 call was placed. Now, what we're hearing today, as I'm just coming out of the courtroom, is, uh, is another layer of this information that we can go into with 
the testimony that has now been given by Chris Wilson in court to the jury. We've heard him in we've heard him in camera without the jury present. We've heard him today. This is his best friend. This is Alec Murdoch's best friend. Um, has worked with him for years and years, per- personally and professionally. Um, and he adds to this timeline as well. So we've got a whole nother set of numbers we got to deal with now. Yeah, you know what I was trying to do in court, uh, when everything was happen- you know, pouring from the witness stand, was taking notes. And when we were doing the cell phone uh, data a couple of days ago, it was right down to the second. At 849.27, Maggie reads a text on the group thread about Mr. Randolph. Murdoch's father at 849.35, the friend Rogie, Rogan Gibson, wrote, but it was never read. And that's where I'm getting the time of the murders between 849.27 and 849.35. And now we've got this overlay of the car data where Murdoch is in his car fumbling around at 9.06. So that's 16 minutes later, he's already, we know he's there because we saw the Snapchat video. We know he's there in the kennels. He's made his way all around from the kennels to where his vehicle is parked. Oh, Christine, could you give me an aerial of Moselle? Because when many of us think about dashing out and getting into our minivan or our car, it's just a a few steps. But not so with Moselle. It's, oh, wow. Okay, there it is. The cars are parked off to the left, and you've got the kennels. It's huge. It's a huge property. So you've got to get from the kennels, where the bodies were, all the way to your vehicle by foot. So you've got eight, basically 850, and then he's in the car cranking up at 906. But yet he says he wasn't there when the murders occurred. Um, you know, I've got so much more data evidence, but I want to go straight to what Ann Emerson from WCIV just brought up because she's right. It was um, riveting. It's the only, well, you couldn't take your eyes off this witness testifying. It's Chris Wilson in our cut. 10. Listen to this. We were standing around in the driveway talking, and I think it was Lee Cope, Mark Ball. I don't remember if Ronnie Crosby was in that conversation, a couple other people. And um, there was some discussion about Alex's interaction with SLED. And um, the discussion that was had was, look, he probably doesn't need to interact with SLED without by himself because don't know what state of mind he's in and don't know what the circumstances are. But he also doesn't need seven or eight lawyers trying to advise him or deal with him. I made it very clear that I wanted to be his friend and not his lawyer, that I didn't, that I didn't feel comfortable with that, um, and um, that one person needed to be, for lack of a better term, the point person. He was destroyed. He was upset. And and I don't know whether he need whether he was able to talk with Sled at that point in time by himself or not, but I knew that that's not something that somebody should do. Why did his best friend not want him to speak to Sled, South Carolina Law Enforcement Division? Why? Because you know, Ann Emerson, if someone in my family, God forbid, had been murdered, I'd want to find out who who murdered my husband. Who murdered my child? 
And no matter how upset I would be, I would want that person caught and brought to justice. So why would Chris Wilson not want his best friend, Murdoch, to speak to SLED? Well, he didn't say that he didn't want to speak to SLED. He didn't want him to speak to SLED without uh, an attorney present, and he didn't want to be the attorney present. From That's the way I kind of read what he was saying. But there was, uh, there was a lot underneath there. It's, 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 it's one of those optics that are coming across that all of his friends were lawyers. All of them that were there, were, that were his close friends that we've been hearing about in this testimony were, were also lawyers. So they were trying to figure out, okay, who's going to deal with this, basically. And, and from what we could gather, this was not something that Chris Wilson was prepared to do for whatever reason. He was not going to get into the middle of this. So I think that, that he was also concerned. I don't know why, and we haven't heard all of it yet, but you know, Chris Wilson was obviously very concerned because he was in his, his friend, Alec Murdoch, was in such terrible shape that night when he was talking to Chris, there was no way he was gonna get a story out that was, that was gonna be of any benefit. So I think that's where they were going with it from there. But you know, really, I thought the prosecution, Nancy, setting up the whole backstory with Chris Wilson, and they really went through it. I mean, this was hours of testimony this morning that he was on the stand really setting up this relationship and how he trusted him implicitly. There was no, there was no question that Alec Murdoch was, in his mind, a good guy and would do the right thing every time. It was, it was incredible to hear how this all took us all the way through these double murders. And, of course, Joshua Ritter, when you have a faithful and loyal best friend on the stand, the first line of cross-examination is, you knew him so well, but I bet you didn't know that he had an opioid problem, did you? I bet you didn't know that he had outright stolen about $8 million from his clients and his law firm. Did you know that? Did you know he persuaded someone to shoot him in the head to try to get insurance benefits? You knew him so well, but you didn't know that, did you? That's exactly where the cross can go. 100%. I mean, they, this has turned itself into a, a character trial, which is kind of unfortunate, I think, for the prosecution. They may have gotten a little too cute by half by trying to introduce all of that financial crimes evidence because they've really turned it into a, a character trial. And now it's going to come down to a question for jurors, partially at least, it, it, does he have the motive motive to do this based upon his character, based upon all the evidence we've heard about him before now, the troubles that he was dealing with, but also being such a good person? Do we believe this is the type of person to commit this crime? And I don't know if that is the direction the prosecution intended when they first started out on this trial. Mr. Ritter, you are familiar with motive evidence, evidence that under some circumstances would be disallowed because it touches on one's prior reputation or past bad acts, typically disallowed at trial, unless it proves motive, course of conduct, frame of mind. True? Yes, no? Isn't that true? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So it can come in. A bad act can come in to show motive, frame of mind, course of conduct. Intent, yes? Yes, but I think where the prosecution may have some trouble here is what is that motive? I'm having trouble connecting the dots of he was in a bunch of financial trouble, he had some drug problems, and therefore that caused him to kill his wife and child. 
where where is the benefit to his life by ending their well, lives? I can and tell I you that. that is- I can tell you that, Joshua. And I don't know that the prosecution is going to state it this plainly, but as another lawyer said, and I'm quoting him, problem solving. He had a massive multi-million dollar lawsuit filed against his family because of his son, now murdered, was drunk as a skunk and high as a kite on a boat. And a beautiful young girl, Mallory Beach, goes spinning off the boat to her death. That lawsuit, guess what? After Paul's murder, that suit was settled. Maggie reportedly was seeking out a divorce lawyer, which would also call in a forensic accountant. And all of his stealing, lying, embezzling would come to light. So now there's no more Maggie. Now there's no more divorce. Yes, please jump in. Nancy, there's something that we have to talk about, too, is the the testimony that we've already heard that has to go in front of the jury still of some of the victims of these alleged financial crimes. I'm using the word allegedly still, even though Chris Wilson was talking about how he was hearing Alec tell him that he had stolen money. So we're now getting those kind of witness accounts to what Alec Murdoch has said. But Nancy, the 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 testimony that we are going to hear if they if they come in of Tony Satterfield, this young man who lost his mother and then um, Alec has already done, admitted to owing money that he stole four point three million dollars from these kids from an insurance settlement that he helped m- manufacture. Not only that, but you know who I saw and I don't know if you know this name right off the top, but Elena Plyler. I just saw her walk into the back into the witness area of the uh, courtroom. This is another young woman who was completely uh, taken to the cleaners at times by by the the financial manipulation. So these are what they what the prosecution is doing is is setting up this this if, if they are looking at character, let's look at the character of how these crimes were committed and and the state of mind of the defendant during that period that he could completely divorce himself from all of what was going on in the world, like to, to in order to go on a holiday or pay a credit card off. We're talking about 99 alleged financial crimes right now that he's facing for for money laundering, financial fraud. These are as as my my legal analyst, Charlie Condon, who's a former attorney general who I've been working with on on this case as well and talking to quite a bit he said these are white collar crimes that have just turned red blood they are red blood collar crime that is what the prosecution is trying to set up and he was uh definitely going to be disbarred ruining his family's reputation uh the father the grandfather the great grandfather judges prosecutors lawyers until screeching halt with alex murdoch um Aside from that, and I, I hear you, Ritter, I hear you loud and clear, how is, are the financial crimes motive for murder? But I think the prosecutor is going to lay it out the way Ann Emerson did. Um, but I want to circle back to something that you can't argue with, and that is hard, cold data. It's my understanding, Ann Emerson, that it took an expert about a year to put together this car evidence that we're hearing today. It was a year. Yeah, absolutely. You're right, Nancy. It took them a year to get into this, uh, to unlock this system. They literally said they had to reverse engineer the entire infotainment system in order to start 
pulling this information out and they still weren't able to get it all from from what they were what we gather so far. Um, but what they did get were these stops and starts with the car, which were so interesting within this timeline. But, you know, Nancy, and this is something else that we're sort of deducing from what we're hearing now. Um, and we were talking about this amongst ourselves a little bit, is that the um, this timeline um, of when uh, we actually heard about an arraignment for these murder charges, for the double murder charges, we all down here were wondering, why is it taking so long for the prosecution because we had been hearing rumors forever that they were going to be going after Alec Murdoch. Um, now we know. It took them a year to unlock this system of navigation. It took them how long? Nine months after the murders to unlock Paul's phone. We know how important that dog video and audio is now with, with the defendant's uh, what, what several witnesses have already right. said is the defendant's voice. Let me circle back to Brian Dar, senior forensic engineer and tire expert with TireExpert.com. I'm curious as to how you became a forensic engineer, but that is for another day, Brian Dar. I heard that it took about a year to unlock all of the data we're getting from Alex Murdoch's Suburban. And it's a lot of data. I can tell every time he turned the car on, when he put it in park, when he took it out of park, the nav system can probably tell me where he went, what time he got there, what time he got back in the car and drove again. Why would it take a year? Did you hear her and Emerson State? It took about a year to reverse engineer the infotainment system. What does that mean? Uh, the uh, what it means to me is that the the data was somehow encrypted, and that they had to go in basically line by line, maybe write an algorithm to understand the data that's there and quote unquote reverse engineer it. Okay, when you said encrypt and unencrypt it. Now I understand why it took them a year. Uh, you know, Mike King joining me, former police commander, host of Profiling Evil on YouTube and author. Mike, you know, we hear it all the time when members of the public, and I agree with them as well, saying, why isn't there an arrest? We know fill in the blank did it. Why, why isn't he behind bars? Now we see. Why? Because it took a year to crack this encrypted code on Murdoch's Suburban. They had to crack the code on Paul's cell phone. A lot of technical data. How do police handle it when the public is, you know, running at them with pitchforks and uh torches and spikes we want justice how do you handle that yeah that's a lot of pressure that's placed on investigators and frankly the administrations to move the case along faster but i think you said it before nancy i've heard it many times you really only get one dip at the well when you take this thing to trial so you gotta have all these pieces and parts lined up and you gotta have them ready to go in a way that the jury can understand them because all it takes is a couple of people in some places, one in many, to say, I just don't buy it. And I love analyzing all the data we're hearing. Uh, first of all, I'm hearing from a, a courthouse source right now that Eddie, cousin Curtis Edward Smith, is in the courthouse. Could he testify this afternoon? 
that uh, Murdoch was seen intently listening to the car testimony as if he were learning something new. Now, at least he's not chewing in, on something and eating. I got s flooded with uh, social media questions about what is he eating? Why is he eating? <laughs> right in front of the jury. And you can hear their stomachs growling and Murdoch is eating at the, at the table. Guys, we're trying to overlay what we know about the car data, which shows that he didn't leave Moselle until about 9.06. Went to his mother's, turned right around and came back. He was only visiting his mother 21 minutes. Okay. But now an overlay of Maggie's phone activity. And this is significant. Take a listen to our cut three. Uh, first call from Alex. What are the times for uh, the call that's associated with lines 11 and 12? They are the same time. It is 6 7 20, 21 at 9.04.23 p.m. It has the name of Alex. Direction shows incoming. And it shows it was a missed call received on 6-7-2021 at 9.06.51 p.m. 9.08.58 p.m. Um, from the phone number 1-803-942-1227, Alex to Maggie Murdoch. What does that text say? It says, going to check on M, be right back. The last call from Alex occurred at 9.06.51, correct? Yes. And the text came from Alex at 908.58, correct? Yes. That entry is at 9.47.23 p.m. And what is that? It is a text message that was received on that from Alex. It says, call me, babe. Okay. And was that text ever read? Uh, mm. I know that's referencing the previous report. No, sir, that text was not read. Well, it wasn't read because Maggie's already dead. And I believe, like the prosecution, that she was dead when Murdoch pulled out of the house, out of Moselle. To Ann Emerson, I want to overlay what we just heard to the car starting and stopping, going in and out of park. Christine, do you mind putting up those um, entries one more time? Because we've got Murdoch at 9.04.23. And... This is Maggie's phone we're looking at, an incoming call from Murdoch at 9.04. Now, we know he's cranking his car, the car is running, and the car is taken out of park at 9.06.50, right at 9.07. Then we have a text to him. I'm going to go check on M, which is mom, I guess. Be right back. And that is at... 908 I believe can we advance the chart so at 908 he's texting all right that means he is in route he's driving at that time because the car goes back in park at 922 and now we've got him texting at 908 all this time he's saying back and forth with Maggie of course they're unread because she's dead there's another entry at 947 where he writes, Call me, babe. What does this mean to you, Ann Emerson, as you overlay the evidence on top of each other to create a timeline? Well, it, it, 
We are down to seconds, aren't we? I mean, we're down to seconds and minutes, you know, and, and that is far, far, far away from where we were just just a couple of weeks ago. We had no idea that the prosecution had really narrowed this down so hard with these with with technology, as you were saying. We got a whole nother layer of it today if uh, from Chris Wilson as well, because, of course, Chris Wilson was one of the people that he called uh, when he was in that car. And they know that through Verizon records and they know that through um, through his phone. They say that a, he talks about a conversation he had with him at 11, 9, 11 p.m. as well. And that they, they talked again at 920. He said 911. He had to call him back at 920. We heard um, that he had just gotten to his mom's house. So this this absolutely is starting to line up. They are going to give us a a a blow by blow description from the state of exactly where Alec Murdoch was. What they're saying is we know where you were the whole time. We know when these phones stopped and we know how these people use their phones. These people were not including himself, were people that use their phones all the time, all the time. So Chris Wilson is actually one of the people that Murdoch is calling that night, many would argue, to establish his alibi. I want you to hear about Chris Wilson, Murdoch's best friend, talking about calls for Murdoch the night of the murders. Take a listen to our cut seven. Does that reflect calls from Alec Murdoch on the night of June 7th, 2021? Yes, sir. He said, hey, you know, hey, Bo is normally how he would greet you. Hey, Bo. Did he sound normal to you? Sounded normal, yes, sir. So you said, hey, I'm busy right now. Let me call you back. What did he say? He said, that's fine. 9-11 p.m. incoming from his cell phone. Called Alec back. 9-20 p.m. I generally say, hey, Bo, too. And, uh, you know, hey, Bo, calling you back. Um, he, he said, hey, I'm about to get to my mom's house. Can we talk a little bit later? I told him, sure. Uh, that's from Alec to me at 9.52 on June the 7th. It says, call me if you up. Picked up the phone and gave him a call. Said, hey, Alec, I got your text calling you back. How's your mama? He said, um, you know, she's, you know, doing about like normal, I think. I mean, she'd been doing poorly for years. And he said, I'm about to get back home. Can we uh, can we talk tomorrow? And pretty shortly after that, I went on to bed. So if the state is correct, Joshua Ritter, criminal defense attorney joining us out of L.A., if the state is correct in their allegations that Murdoch murdered his wife and son, he is able to act perfectly normal on the phone with his best friend. Yeah, that's that's hugely impactful evidence for the defense and something I'm sure they're going to drill home that. Listen, you're saying that a man, by the way, didn't just commit an, an, a, a, your everyday type of murder here, murdered his wife and child. And it's cool as a cool as a cucumber on the phone with his best friend who doesn't have a hint that anything is wrong. That's that's powerful evidence for the defense. I don't care how you cut it. Um, and I think it's certainly something they're going to remind jurors of when they get into closing argument that, listen, a lot of this doesn't line up with the prosecution's theory of what was taking place and when. Well, I think it lines up exactly with what the prosecution says. The calls, the data from the car that um, our new friend Brian Dar is explaining to us, it all fits together. What doesn't fit together to me is that he is so calm when he calls his friend knowing he just killed his wife and son.
crime stories with Nancy Grace. You know, when you think it through to uh, Mike King, very often you see defendants act really calm after a murder. I mean, do you remember Scott Peterson? Do you remember Drew Peterson? I mean, so many. They're, they're calm as a nun. I, I remember sitting with uh, professors at Harvard University talking about this transitional thing. And when people finally make a decision, there's a sense of calmness that comes. Even completing something like this might bring that calmness. And yet I think still when you look at some of the other evidence, especially the move in the vehicle in and out of park so many times, Nancy, I've said it a couple of times, I think that is so indicative of the disorganization that's starting to happen as the reality of what he's gone through, as the adrenaline starts to drain off, those kinds of things are gonna play in, I hope, as this thing goes forward and as we start looking at cellular location and other things in the case. Now joining me, a renowned expert, Dr. Michelle Dupree. Now, not only is she a pathologist and a medical examiner, she's also a former detective. And let me tout one more thing. She is the author of the Homicide Investigation Field Guide. Now, Dupree, um, no aspersions to be cast on the rest of our guests, but I'm saving the best for last. That's you, medical examiner, pathologist, detective. Now that you've heard some of the technical data as explained by Brian Darr, the argument by Joshua Ritter, and our former police commander, Mike King, the facts from Ann Emerson, what do you make of it? Well, Nancy, I think this is very interesting. I think that a lot of these things are what we call forensic countermeasures, which is Alex trying to um, diffuse the situation, trying to cast doubt on him and you know, refer that to someone else. Remember early on in the investigation, he offered a reward, $100,000, to find the killer of his wife and child. Yet, he put a time limit on it. Who does that? Also, he was very cool, I think, and rather calculating the night of the interview. He's sitting in the, in the car, being interviewed by the officer, and he's almost thinking about everything that he's saying before he says it. To me, that's just another indication of how cool this person can be under such duress. I do think that the movement of the car back and forth in and out of park, he was starting to unravel. I mean, this has to be a horrific scene, uh, you know, horrific emotions, even after he has done this, allegedly done this. No, Dr. Michelle Dupree, uh, you just reminded me about that time limit on the reward. He gave a $100,000 reward if you can solve this murder in X number of weeks and months. I remember that, which I recall we discussed at the time that it was very odd. Could you explain exactly what you mean by a forensic countermeasure, doctor? Sure. A forensic countermeasure is something that usually the perpetrator will do. It's almost like staging the crime scene. It's something to throw off the investigation, to make people look in other directions rather than at the perpetrator. So Ann Emerson, she's right. I recall when Murdoch put out the reward and he put a time limit on it. Do you remember that? That time, so much was happening during September as well, of course, because that was when we had the, uh, the botched <laughs> assisted suicide attempt. 
um, that was also going on. So, so already that world was starting to unravel for sure. But also don't, you know, uh, it, it reminds me also of the shotgun that, that he was carrying. If you kind of follow Dr. Dupree's line of thinking, um, that shotgun that he had in his hands when the cops got to him the night of the murders, uh, that was very, that was, that was very well thought out um, from the state's uh, perspective, because of course that would explain uh, gunshot residue and some other things that were going on when they were testing him. Guys, on the stand today, Murdoch's best friend. Now I want you to hear where he's coming from and you have to understand his relationship to Murdoch so you can carefully evaluate his testimony. Take a listen to best friend Chris Wilson on the stand in our cut six. One of your best friends. Yes, sir, very much. Not just my best friend, Mr. Wars. I mean, our family were close. I mean, our kids, our wives, I mean, we're close. You had a friendship with Maggie, too. Yes, sir, very much. You had a friendship with Paul, too. Yes, sir. You had a friendship with Buster, too. Yes, sir. Haven't been able to have that since. Not like it was, but yes, sir. Hope to one day. But Yes, sir. And more about when he finds out about the murders. Take a listen to our cut eight. How'd you find out? I was asleep. My wife comes in kind of, you know, just hysterical. Um, she says, you got to wake up. You got to wake up. I don't remember if she was on the phone with um, Randy's wife or Randy. My wife is telling me what's going on. I just told her, I said, um... I, I gotta, I'll get some clothes. I got to go to Moselle. About what time you got? Did you get to Moselle? About one o'clock in the morning. I don't know that I knew at that point that the, that this had occurred at the kennels, but I could see that there was tons of activity there. I think John Marvin and Randy were walking out um, and kind of waved off and said, "Go to the house." Was the defendant there? He was, yes, sir. Yeah. You talked to him? I did. Hugged How his neck you? and cried. There were a lot of the lawyers that he practices law with, several family members, you know, some friends of his that I knew. Um, there were a lot of people already in the house. Okay, a lot of people may find that odd. Mike King, joining me, former police commander, host of Profiling Evil on YouTube. Mike King, how many times have you walked into a double murder scene and the place is crawling with lawyers? <laughs> I don't think I can remember a time that that happened. But uh, I thought it was interesting that they said, uh, yeah, we're going to encourage him not to talk to police, yet he still did. <laughs> yeah, th I find that very odd. Why would you encourage someone when their wife and son have been brutally murdered, shot multiple times? Maggie was riddled with bullets. Why would you not want them to talk to police? Exactly. And, and you know, it really makes me wonder that if it's an arrogance thing, knowing what he probably should do from a legal standpoint, getting that counsel from other lawyers in the room, deciding he's going to do it anyway. Is it a, an arrogance that he thinks he can talk his way through it? Or is it that he actually is innocent? But it makes me really wonder if this guy is going to have the arrogance to go in and try to testify in this case. Oh my goodness, Joshua Ritter, do you think Murdoch would actually take the stand? No way. I don't think so. I, I, I think his attorneys would s sit on his chest before they allowed that to happen. But listen, I've been listening to all of this and I appreciate the idea about these forensic countermeasures and everything else. 
So what we have here is either a person who's so diabolical that they've planned this all out or a person who's innocent, right, is what his defense is going to argue. And if that person truly believes that they're innocent, you might not be able to keep him from the stand. And if he truly is as diabolical as we're all, all seeming to think, maybe that's the same kind of person you can't keep from the stand. So I, nothing in this case would cease to shock me at this point. Ann Emerson. I can't agree um, with him more. I keep getting <laughs> texts from the courthouse that Curtis Eddie Smith, a.k.a. Cousin Eddie, uh, is in the courthouse. Now, in that jurisdiction, okay. is the jail below the court? Is there a jail in the courthouse, a holding cell? Literally, like, you know where the courthouse is? It's right behind me. If you just go a little bit farther down the hill, and I've done the run. I have done the run to get... Uh, you know, some of the defendants in different cases from Carlton County to get pictures of them coming out of that sort of sally port in the back. So really, it's it's less than a five minute drive if you literally are just getting them into the car and driving them down there. It's it's uh, to run. I think I've done it about two and a half minutes. So it, it's right there. And, you know, this is the Carlton County Jail where we actually that's, this is the first time I ever saw Curtis Seti Smith because I was at that Sally Port and in the first bond hearing when we heard about the importance of, of who he is and how he was gonna play a role in this. And Nancy, I think it's so interesting that you're hearing that from the court right now. I have not gotten that uh, confirmed yet that he's here. I have heard that he's supposed to be coming this week. Um, but, but if he is here, it makes sense with what the prosecution was doing literally right before we got out of court for lunch, they were taking us up they, and they're very good at that. They, they're taking us right up to that point of the roadside cheating. I mean, we are on September 4th, 2021 right now. We've just heard from Chris Wilson about his last interaction ever in person with Alec Murdoch ever again. This was the last time he talked to his best friend in the whole wide world um, was on September 4th. Just just before all of this went down. OK, let's take a listen to that in our cut nine. Went out on the front porch and I looked at him and I said, Alec, and I'm sure I said F or H or something. I said, what the, you know, what the is going on? I need to know what's going on. Because I know about this thing that Lee's called me about and I need to know if there's something else you've done that involves me that I don't know about. That's a problem for me. What is going on? Broke down crying. Said, I can't talk. Let me, I can't, I can't write this second, Chris. He walked inside and grabbed a handful of paper towels and came back out on the porch and said, you know, I'm sorry. I, I, I've had a drug problem. I've been addicted to opioids for something like 20 years. There were parts where it was heated and parts where it was silent and parts where it was probably calmer. He admitted he had been stealing money, you know. From who? He, um, from his law firm and from clients. I couldn't believe that I didn't know it, never saw it, never suspected it, drugs or money. And what did he say? Just said it had been going on for a long time. I was angry. I was, I didn't know how to feel. Which leads me back to what Joshua Ritter, a renowned defense attorney from L.A., was just saying, Ann Emerson, that his own best friend didn't know anything about the opioid addiction or the embezzling money that's been going on for years, 20 years. So what else could Alex Murdoch be capable of that his friends would never suspect? Murder? Oh, I mean, I think they're absolutely going to have a problem here, right? They've got to, 
Now, uh, I mean, the prosecution is is setting up that no one knew him. I mean, this is a question that the prosecution has given to several of the closest sort of people around Alec Murdoch. Did you really know him? No, I guess I didn't. You know, this is what they they keep on saying on the stand. So we've been setting up that they that he's garnered an, an enormous amount of trust and brotherhood with the people that he loves, his family, everyone. But did we really know him? No, is the answer that we keep on hearing. But the defense, of course, is going to be, um, uh, you know, fighting this tooth and nail as they get into it. They are right. they are going to be saying, you know, they're going to say that he's as, as loving of a family that he could ever have in his entire world. And Chris Wilson backed that up. To Dr. Michelle Dupree, how many times, Dr. Dupree, have you handled cases that end up in the morgue where no one really knew the defendant they thought they did? But and they would never have suspected a double murder like this. But in fact, it was true. There are parts to people, especially addicted to drugs, that we can never comprehend. We're trying to apply logic to an illogical situation, Dr. Dupree. Exactly, Nancy. And how many times is a significant other, a husband or a wife, the one who actually does kill their loved ones? You know, Whenever we see these mass shootings or anything horrific like this, family and friends all, almost always say, we never saw it coming. You know, and if they did, certainly they would have alerted somebody or tried to get that person help. But in this case, everyone is saying the same thing. We never suspected it. And what does that even tell us about Alex Murdoch? He was very, very good at this, at hiding things from other people, even those that were close to him. Guys, I'm hearing in my ear, everybody is breaking camp and going back into the courthouse. Lunch is over. Now they've got to get those jurors back into the jury area where they sit. We never see their faces. Um, and I'm sure that they've got a lot of emotions and concerns because of the bomb threat yesterday, the unfounded bomb threat. But they're making their way back into the courtroom, and so are we. Goodbye, friend. Thanks for being with us.